0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life Channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Donna Freitas about writing trade books. Donna, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Donna, I wonder if you would begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
2: Well, I do lots of different things. Uh, in my life. I have a very uh, solid foot grounded in academia, and then I have a very you know, solid other foot grounded in the writing and publishing world. And so I have a PhD, and I do a lot of scholarly work, and uh, I've done several national studies. Uh, but then I also have this other life that came about post-PhD That at first had me writing pieces in the newspaper, uh, but then very quickly writing nonfiction books. Uh, And then I branched out and I started writing uh, fiction and uh, literary fiction and uh, literary nonfiction. So I would say uh, my primary identity at this point is as a writer uh, mostly a full-time writer, but occasionally, you know, certain years when I have the time, you'll find me teaching as a professor, professor in a traditional way uh, at a university. Um, and I certainly started out on that path initially as a tenure track person before I shifted uh, more fully into the writing life.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, why were you drawn to writing trade books?
2: Well, I wasn't initially. (laughs) Um, I'm not one of those people who knew they wanted to be a writer since they were six or seven. I feel like I'm always on these panels where, when people ask that question, like, "Why did you become a writer? When did you know you wanted to become a writer?" Everyone but me on the panel is saying something like, "You know, I started writing when I was eight, and I kept a journal, and you know, that just wasn't me, and I didn't really know." I even enjoyed this kind of writing, you know, which is writing trade books or books for a broad audience, until I was like 29, until I was just about finished with my um, PhD. And the opportunity to write a trade book landed in my lap because um, the head of a publishing house came to one of my talks and asked me afterwards if I wanted to write a book about what I was speaking about. And I thought, yeah, sure, fun. But I, I had no idea it was going to change my life. But it really did change my life. And so trade books are different than the kinds of books you write, you know, when you're just getting your PhD or just after you get your PhD. So let me differentiate first and say that your average academic writes monographs. Um, And a monograph is what you call that book um, that you turned your dissertation into, that you publish at a university press, and that goes to a lot of libraries. Those are monographs. And most academics only publish monographs in their career, and they may publish lots of them. So they may publish lots of books. They may all be monographs. And monographs are books that are exclusively for a specialized audience. So those are, um, you know, grad students, you know, studying in your field and other scholars in your field. So they have a very, very narrow audience. They, you know, they're often only going to be bought, like they they may only sell like a thousand copies max in the course of their existence. And so sales tends to be really low. But trade books are very different. They are for a broad audience. Um, They could be for anybody you don't have to have a PhD, you don't have to be a grad student, you can be a parent, you could just be an average citizen, you know, someone who's interested in a topic. And so they have the potential to sell lots and lots of copies. And so and the key is, you know, broad audience. And I would say that, you know, when anybody's getting their PhD, they know that they're going to publish something from it, you know, they know that, you know, you're going to try to publish your dissertation, you're going to write scholarly articles. And so in that sense, I knew that I was going to write stuff, but I had no idea that I was going to enter this world where um, I was going to be writing books that got reviewed in the New York times or in the Washington post kind of thing with all sorts of people, um, you know, reading them. So that, that was literally, you know, it was an accident the first time, except when I started it, when I, when I did that first trade book, and figured out, oh wow, I could be talking to a lot of people about my work if I just learned to write a little bit differently, uh, more openly, as opposed to in this very narrow, specialized way for just people in my field. Then I, you know, I, I really like this. Like this is what I want to be doing. And so it was that initial experience, which I think of as like my training wheels experience, that really changed everything for me.
1: That's great. Thank you. Um, you, As you said, you have written multiple trade books based on your scholarly research. Um, so you've done a couple different projects that have been national, nationwide studies, um, largely around college students. Um, what ideas can you share for how to translate academic scholarship into more accessible forms that would appeal to a wider audience?
2: I would just say first and foremost, you have to have the desire to have your work speak a broad audience. And so, so much of this is just you decide, this is what I want. I want to speak beyond the very narrow category of people who specialize in my field. I want to figure out how to translate my work so that, you know, someone even, you know, like my grandma could understand it. So I think you just have to make that a priority. And I think here is maybe where I should say, that that can be a risky proposition in the sense that one of the things I learned really quickly uh, when I was working on that first trade book was that I was transgressing the expectations of academia and tenure. I was really discouraged by my colleagues from doing this. I was told outright that there are hierarchies of audiences, you know, and academia. And at the tip top were the PhD people, specifically the people in my field. And that should be my exclusive interest in only writing to those people. And the more I tried to write more broadly, the more I opened myself up to writing to people who didn't have PhDs, the more I would be jeopardizing my ability to get tenure And, you know, I thought that was ridiculous. Like, it made me really, really angry. And um, because also so much of my work is about college students who obviously don't have PhDs, you know, and who are often like 18 or 19. And one of my pet peeves was always, you know, here we have all these academics who love to study young adults. And then what do they do? they write about those young adults, you know, and all the information they got about them to this very narrow PhD audience that has nothing, you know, that the young adults are never going to read their work. And that felt really off to me. And so, you know, I started realizing that my priority was so much about, you know, writing to the people that I was interested in researching and like having them be included in the findings of my research and having their parents be included and having anyone else who was interested. And so, um, but that really, you know, I can't tell you how much pushback I got. Um, But, so I would just say that, uh, you know, first and foremost, you have to decide this is what I want. And you also have to know that depending where you are in, in terms of getting tenure or just having gotten tenure, it can be risky. It's also risky. It can be risky to your reputation, even if you've already gotten tenure. You know, I think the second you write a popular book, people will start to judge you differently. They'll start to think, oh, your work isn't as, as valuable because it's written in such a way that anybody can read it. So I think those are some of the risks you take by doing this. Um, but the rewards are extraordinary. Suddenly your, your audience is so big, And it's just so exciting to suddenly have your work opened up to the public sphere. So I would say there is risk, but there's incredible reward. And then the other thing I would say is, so, you know, first, you have to have the desire and be willing to risk, you know, what might happen with your colleagues. And then second, you have to make it a priority to learn to write to a trade audience It's not just, um, I think some people think, oh, well, all I need to do is water down what I'm thinking about or my theory or, you know, my research. And that's not it at all. This is a question of how can I speak about what may be my very complex research or theory in a way anyone can understand. So there's a kind of act of translation that has to go on. You have to be able to write in this very clear and concise and engaging way. And that's its own skill. You have to decide that you're going to prioritize, you know, to to learn. And I think, you know, this is the big challenge for academics, because when we're getting our, when we're, you know, getting our PhD, we are, you know, we're jargon all over the place. You know, like our writing is full of jargon. We often, you know, learn that the more obscure our writing, you know, is, the, the better it is in some ways. Um, so the more complex it is, but, you know, with, if you're going to write a trade book, you have to learn to write clearly. So you have to learn to translate that very complex research in a straightforward way that someone can grasp. Uh, grasp. And I think that is its own skill. So you have to prioritize that highly.
1: Great. Thank you. That, um, that's fascinating. And it, and it kind of flows into one of my questions. It it almost sounds like, um, the way you're describing, it's almost like an active undoing of, of what we spend, you know, years learning how to do. Um, and, and just to, you know, just to throw in, I I I know that um so so you were I mean this is how how we kind of got connected is that you were the one of the reviewers on my book and I remember having one of our very first conversations was that editorial conversation that you kind of reached out to me and I remember just thinking wow like it's like I have to kind of almost you know even in translating my dissertation to to a monograph it was like this act of undoing of so much that I had been taught and how to what to do for, for writing scholarship. Um, And you're still writing up your scholarship. Like you say, you're just doing it in a very different way. So, so it kind of just to extend, extend that idea that you've, you've already touched on. And and I don't know if you have any more to explore here, but you do review a lot of manuscripts. Um, You reviewed mine and that's how we connected and you're an avid reader. Um, What would you say are some of the most common writing missteps you see authors make in writing up their scholarship? um, that you can, you know, that kind of translates into when they're, that, that translates into when they're trying to write for a broader audience. Um, and even, even some of that is akin to when you're trying to translate your dissertation into a monograph sometimes. Um, and then taking that even a step further, trying to go to trade, um, to even a broader audience. Um, what are some of those common missteps that you see?
2: I think the biggest one is the one that makes me the most sad, (laughs) which is, What we learn, I think, as academics is to bury the reasons why we got there in the first place. And what I mean by that is, you know, we all, like to get a PhD, you are passionate about something. Like you can't get through all that work and get, you know, doing your dissertation and defending it if you didn't fall in love somehow with ideas or with a certain kind of conversation or if you didn't have something to say. And I think what's really unfortunate with academic writing is we are taught the worst habits ever in terms of um, self-expression or in terms of how we express those ideas. And what we learn is to bury, you know, the story, the thing that got us there. And so to give you an idea, um, I, you know, I was at my annual conference and, you know, one year, a number of years ago, and I was staying with one of my best uh, professor friends we've been friends for years and you know she was working on this book proposal and she she gave it to me because she wanted me to look at it and you know she had told me before what the project was about and I thought oh my gosh this project sounds amazing like it was about um, about all the murals in Philadelphia and it was and mm-hmm. she was really fascinated by how the city of Philadelphia has, used murals, so art, the painting of these murals in the context of this community. So so communities, like neighborhoods, would paint murals as a form of healing from tragedy. And they're all over Mm -hmm. Philadelphia. And she grew up in Philadelphia. And she was just really, you know, she had told me these remarkable things about her work. She was going into jails and talking to people about these things, going into communities and interviewing people who had been involved in these mural projects. And it was just, you know, every time I talked to her, it made me cry. Like, it was such a moving story. So then she gives me the proposal for the book about this mural project. And there was, like, no evidence of anything that I just told you. It was, like, all super dense, like, theory upfront. I mean, it was literally unrecognizable from what I just told you. And so I sat there and I was like, where did your project go? And one of the things she told me was that like, her chair was like, "Oh, you have to put this." and that like so basically, her project, like all that stuff I just told you, that's so extraordinary about her project, the why of why, you know, why she did this research, you know, the heart of it, like truly the heart of it, was buried in the footnotes, in the endnotes, actually. And I was like, "No, no, 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 no. You need to do this in the reverse. Like it is the story that has to be up front. Because that that is that is the why of what you're doing. And all that other stuff, this theory that you're you know front-loading here, like that's what goes in the end nodes. And I think one of the things that's incredibly I think that if if an academic wants to do this kind of work, the thing you need to know that nobody teaches us is that you can have two conversations simultaneously in a book. You can you know, tell the story, you know, as a kind of story, you have to think of your work as a story. So you can tell the story of that research, that theory, those ideas, the conversation you want to have in the prose of the book. And then you can use the endnotes to have a totally separate conversation where you put all your hardcore research, where all those scholars who are going to read it are going to go and take a look and, you know, see all the nitty gritty. Of, of what got you there in the first place. But I think what we learn to do um, as we're getting our PhD, as, you know, as we're pursuing tenure, is we learn to bury the heart of things, like the why, and showcase only the research. And often we only really let people in to our findings, to so the stuff we're most excited about at the very, very end, in a few paragraphs, maybe our concluding chapter, you know or maybe just you know you got to get there to the last paragraph. And so we do the opposite. We learn to do the opposite I think in monographs or in academic writing. When in trade books, you know, the most important thing is going to be to tell that story of how you got there. Hmm.
1: That's really great. Yes, that is it is it's almost counterintuitive to um to how we are are trained for so long. So it's it's wonderful to hear you talk about that. Um so kind of along and another question kind of along the writing process. So I'm a process nerd, admittedly, Um, and I don't believe I'm alone in that, but I do like like to put that out, out there. I revel in process my own, other people's, the research process, the writing process, and I enjoy hearing about other people's processes. So along those lines, what can you share with us about your writing process and and how that looks differently or looks a certain way when you're writing, say, a trade book? And now you are a very versatile writer and author. Um, you, like you said, you you do scholarship. Um, you know you, uh, and you also do nonfiction. I mean, um, you do fiction. You do young adults. Um, you. You've recently done a memoir. You you are very versatile. So can you talk to us a little bit about the writing process? And you can kind of share if you would like about maybe some of those different genres that you do write in and what that looks like for you. Um, or if you want to focus just on the trade books, that would be great too.
2: Sure. So, I mean, all my books are trade books. So, um, so, and, and and that includes the novels and the memoir. Those are trade books because all those books are for a wide audience. Um, there, None of them are monographs. Um, You know, but I would also say that, you know, most of the big university presses have trade branches or arms or imprints to them. So I think one of the most important things for academics to know is you can do a trade book and still get that, you know, university press, uh, you know, uh, label on it or um, that that, um, you know, the value of. You know, you can still do a tenure book and do a trade book. I guess is what I'm saying. Um, But I think, you know, my process has evolved a lot over the years because I didn't start out as a writer. I didn't intend to become one, and I think as I've gone along, I've just sort of learned as I go. But I think the biggest, I think the biggest difference in my writing process over the years has been my confidence in knowing what my priority as a writer needs to be. And that is to, you know, this question of like, what is at the heart of this? Like, what, what is the story that I am telling? What did I learn from all my research? And so for me now, you know, rather than, you know, front-loading my book with the history of a topic, um, or the literature review that I've done to show everybody, like, look, I deserve to be here. Because I feel like that's a lot of what happens in academic articles and in, you know, in monographs. Um, you know, when people publish a dissertation, the first few chapters of the book are often devoted to, like, not at all what you've done or what you figured out, but, like, to, like, let me tell you everything that happened before I got here. So, like, we often don't even know what the project is really about or what your findings are until well into the book. And, you know, literally what I ask myself when I'm going to start a new, you know, a new book, when I'm, when it's time for me to write the book based on the study I just did. And mind you, like, usually for, you know, I've been doing research for several years before I write a book. So I have been interviewing people, I've been doing surveys. And so I have thousands and thousands of pages of interviews of survey data. Like, so I'm like, you know, drowning in data. And, you know, that can be really daunting when you have that much research. Where in the world do you begin? And what I what I've learned to ask myself is, okay, you know, I'm standing up in front of a group of people and my job is to tell them about what I just learned from all this research. What is the first thing that comes to mind that I feel like, oh, this is what you need to know about what I have just done? Like I ask myself that and that is always the beginning of the book because the thing that I feel most excited about or the thing that was most startling to me or most surpri- you know, most surprising or just even like shocking or, or just strange, like those sorts of things, it's just where I let myself start, start the conversation because for me, it is literally where the conversation would start if I was talking to somebody who was sitting in front of me. And I think letting myself feel empowered enough to do that, to let the story, you know, be my guide, um, I think is, is really how I begin. And, and so as, as a feminist, you know, as someone who is always thinking about... Um, you know that I learned from feminism and gender studies, like where where are the spaces in what we know, like where are the conversations that we're not having but that we should, like what are the people we don't hear from talking about that they wish we would talk about, you know? I feel like that is always operating in my brain as a priority. Those um, you know they're very feminist priorities, and so for me, um, voice and storytelling, the qualitative part of things has you know, is, is central to, to who I am as a writer. Um, It was from the beginning, but I think writing trade books, the task of writing for a broad audience actually empowered me to be the best feminist scholar that I've ever been. Because Mm. when I'm the academic who is burying all those voices, who's burying the qualitative, who's burying the, the, the story of what got me there in the first place, what made me care, and then what I found out—that's the worst feminist I could be, because I'm burying, like, I'm burying all of the stuff that I learned as a feminist to care about. And so I do feel like um, writing trade books is has really made me a better feminist scholar. Hmm.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: That's really great, and I um I'm, I'm recalling um parts of our conversation, and and I remember being very struck by um sort of this same topic that we we're talking about, and this idea of not just the literature review, but but really that that you kind of start with that um, um, even when you're talking about um you know even when you're bringing forward your participant narratives you always kind of start with the scholars before them. And it's kind of that, I remember that question you posed of like, you know, whose voice are we privileging and whose voice should we be privileging in our work? Um, All these scholars who came before or the participants whose story we're bringing forward. Um, And that really stuck with me. And I think that's kind of the heart of what you're talking about here, which is, which is, um, which is great. And again, a lot of this just feels very counterintuitive to, to how we are trained. And, um, and so it's wonderful to hear you kind of expound on that and explain that. Um, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit and, and ask about some, some of the the pieces of the publishing process. So I'm wondering if you could share with us about pub- the publishing process itself. For example, how does publishing a trade book compare with maybe publishing a scholarly manuscript and, and some more of, um, not so much in, in the writing process, but more in the, the actual publishing process and what, maybe take us through that a little bit.
2: Well, I would say first, just, you know, my whole um, writing career, I feel like happened by accident. Like I just kept discovering things as I went. Like nobody told me this is how it works. And, you know, I think one of the, the biggest things that people don't realize, especially early on, is just when you go to your anu- annual conference and you go to the book fair which everybody does, of course, that was like my favorite part all the time of going to my conferences was like, you know, seeing all the books that were coming out, you know, all those publishers who are there, like they have editors there, like with them, and the editors want to talk to you. <laughs> and so just the, like, I had no idea when I first went to my conferences that there were going to be editors, like sitting there all over the place. When they take meetings with scholars, they take meetings with young scholars. They're very excited to discover young scholars. And, you know, they want to have meetings with you. They want to hear about your research. And so um, I would just advise people to, to know that, first of all. And, you know, I think it's, you know, what you can do ahead of time before your conference is you can figure out what are the publishers that are going to be there, and then you can reach out to the, you know, to editors and say, I'm going to be at this conference. I know you're going. And um, would you be willing to meet with me? I have a project I'd like to talk to you about. And so I think taking advantage of that is is so important. And, you know, it, you know, now we're in the middle of a pandemic. But, you know, when you have um, your conference to, you know, to sit down face to face with editors and have that time, you know, 15, 30 minutes to, to pitch your, your research, or just to have a conversation about this is what I'm working about, this is what I care about, it is invaluable. And so when I figure that out, when I would go to my annual conference, I would make like eight to 10 meetings before I got there. So I had all this face time with editing. And so I feel like ed- editors. So I feel like it is so easy to do that. And so many people don't know how to do it. So I would just encourage people mm-hmm. to just know that and to like editors want to talk to you. So don't be afraid to do it. Um, but I think uh, so. The difference you asked—the difference between publishing an academic book versus like a, a monograph versus a trade book, right? Sorry, no, I got just off a topic. bit. No, that's
1: okay. No, that was great. Just <laughs> yeah, just, I just—I mean, it's all in the publishing. Whatever you feel you want to share, but that process, that publishing process, and how that might be different.
2: Well, um, you know, generally to to publish trade nonfiction, you don't have to have written the whole book. Um, what they would like is a proposal and a um, sample chapter, usually, if if you're not proven. So, like, if you haven't, you know, if they haven't published with you before or something like you would you would definitely need a sample chapter. But what they're really looking for is like the proposal of a trade book is. It's there so you can give people a snippet of the why. Like, why should we care about this project? And so it should absolutely start with a story. Um, when a lot of a lot of those proposals include some sort of background, like, you know, a, a title called background. And so they want to, like, that's often the first thing that you, you have to include in your proposal. And when they say background, like, they don't mean, um, they, they don't mean, like, the history of the field you're working in. They mean, like... Like what I was talking about before, you're standing in front of a room of people. What's the first thing you want to tell them about this thing? Like, what's the thing you're most excited about? So they want to know, um, they want a captivating story. They want to be drawn in like you were to this research, this work that you're doing. And then the other thing that's really important in the proposal is, um, is why you? And one of the best things about having a PhD is it automatically makes you an expert and it gives you authority, and, you know, you should know that um, that is one reason why a publisher will want to pub- like, publish your book, is that people with PhDs automatically have this authority to speak about a, a, a topic. And, um, and so that's, you know, that's a justification for them to, to buy your book. So, um, so anyway, you know, you have to do the proposal, you have to do um, a sample chapter and I think one of the best things about writing a trade book that's really different than writing a monograph is um, the fact that you you get paid. Like, you get paid to write these books. Um, they can be, you know, sometimes up to the, you know, uh, like its own salary. So, um, so one of the things when people are thinking about going on sabbatical, everybody's always looking for money and ways to make up you know, the other half of the salary they're not going to get if they're gone for like a whole year or something. And I think one of the things that academics don't tend to realize is that you don't necessarily need a grant. (laughs) Like you can, you can get, you know, you can get a trade book Um, that can be the other part of your salary or, or maybe more than the other part of your salary. And so I think, you know, one of the reasons to think about trade publishing is that, you know, you are paid for it. And you know one of the things I've always wanted to write this article um, that in my head is titled "Like the Second Shift of Academia." And I think one of the most toxic, problematic things we learn as academics is that you know, first of all, that not even that you can get paid from your for your writing, but that you shouldn't get paid from your writing, that if you do get paid, it somehow like dirties the work that you're doing. And um, but all that does is it disempowers you and closes off your options as an academic. Right. So so rather than giving you more options for how you can go on sabbatical or even how you can get out from under a really problematic job, um, you know, it it doesn't allow you those those options. And so I think, you know, sometimes one reason to write a trade book is because you need money (laughs) and that's totally fine. Because you could just decide, okay, this is why I'm not going to do this as a monograph. I'm going to do it in a different way because I deserve to get paid for my writing. And I I do think that you should get paid for your writing. So,
1: okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, speaking about some of the key differences of, you know, um, more traditional scholarly uh, monographs and trade books, um, when you're publishing for a scholarly audience, there's some expectation that you have or you should have published on a topic before a book but that may not be the case for trade books. Are there put pitfalls to pre-publishing with trade?
2: Um, I guess I don't think of it as pre-publishing um, because I guess this gets into, do you value trade books as much as you value a monograph or scholarly articles? So like, so like, I don't want to, I don't, so some people create a hierarchy. I think it's a false hierarchy, like mm-hmm. that's got that somehow articles, academic articles or monographs are somehow better than a trade book. And, and that's, you know, that's a bias, right? So mm-hmm. that's a bias toward jargon and a really a, a, a higher, like it's making a hierarchy of audience. Right. So, which I think is a justice issue, but, um, so in academia, we will decide to value a book that is a monograph, like the narrower the audience, the more value we give it. And mm-hmm. I think that's false. Like, you know, I would say my trade books about my national studies, which take years to research and, you know, are done with random sampling and all the tools of, you know, of, of scholarly research. Um So somehow, like what we're claiming then is that even though I'm doing all of this work as a scholar, like using all the methods that I learned, you know, as a scholar and, you know, applying that to doing my research, that somehow because the voice in which I speak about that research is open enough that a wider audience can understand it, somehow devalues the publication. And that is just, Bull. <laughs> so like in, in my opinion, I know that there are arguments like to the contrary, but when you, when I look at it that way, then I think that's just ridiculous. Like we're saying that the voice in which we speak about our work can either devalue or you know, give value to, um, to the research itself, the publication itself. And I mean, let's look at that for a second, like the idea that somehow if I use plainer language to speak about my research, that it is less valuable than if I use jargon. Like, it doesn't mean that I don't know the jargon. Like, I know all the jargon, but I'm choosing to translate that jargon into something digestible. To, to hmm. a broader audience, to the like to the non PhD people, because otherwise hmm. we're just creating you know categories of privilege, right? And we're deciding that an obscurely written, full of jargon article is more valuable than uh, a broadly, more accessibly written article about the very same stuff. So so anyway, um, I don't like I don't make those distinctions. I think mm. the work itself is different, but I don't think that one is more valuable than the other. And so just so you know, you know, I've gotten to the point in my research where or in my my scholarly life where I just automatically assume when I'm doing a big project that the book I'm going to write is a trade book number 1 because I deserve to get paid for my work. And tr- trade books are the only way you can get paid. And um, but also number two, like just on the level of like privilege and justice, like for me, it's a justice issue. Like mm-hmm. why should I not make my research widely available? Why should I decide that only a very privileged narrow category of people should have access to it? So for me, this is a this is a justice issue. Um, so anyway, um, this isn't about, am I prematurely writing, you know, publishing about my research? This is the publication I'm doing for my research because with the scholarly article, one, I'm not getting paid, which is also a justice issue. That's like the second shift of academia, like all over again, which I think is problematic on a feminist level and all sorts of other levels. Um, But also it's going to require me to prioritize my, um, the kinds of things I write about in a way that I find problematic it's going to, it's, you know, academic writing is, is an like endless act of proving yourself. Like you prove I read this, I read that, I read the other thing. And in, you construct things in such a way that the actual research is diminished in whatever it is you're, you're writing. And I just refuse to do that. Um, that doesn't mean that I haven't done the literature review. That doesn't mean that I don't know everything that's been said on a partic- particular topic I'm writing about. Where you'll find that evidence is in the end notes of the books that I write. So when I'm doing a trade book, I'm doing two things at once. I'm doing it like I think this is justice work. It's feminist work in the sense that I am prioritizing the story, the heart of why we are there, the voices that I think need to be seen up front. I'm privileging, you know, the things that we normally um, devalue. So like the actual reasons, you know, the, the voices often of you know the people that I've spoken with for my research, and I'm. I'm essentially um, sidelining, but it's certainly there in the end notes, all that like literature review, it's all there. It's just in a different place. And so Mm -hmm. it's just a different kind of conversation. You have different priorities and you use the apparatus of the book. Like, so I think, you know, I'm doing university press trade books. They're peer reviewed, like they're peer reviewed on the level of the proposal. They're peer reviewed when the manuscript is ready. So there's two stages of peer review. It's not like I'm not doing that. It's just the only difference for me is that the literature review, the history, et cetera, that all goes in the end notes. It's all there. I've done it all. I just put it elsewhere. My priority is the story that I'm telling about the research. Mm.
1: And I love that you frame it as a as a, a feminist issue and a justice issue because, you know, and especially in the work that you do, um, like you said, it's, you know, you, you your work, your last two national studies have revolved around college students, sex and the soul and the happiness effect, um, which we will have listed, you know, um, as, as a part of the, the information for the podcast. So, so listeners can, can see those books. Um, you know, it's, you're, you're studying college students, you're using their stories, you're gathering their stories, collecting their stories. And so, you know, to write something in such a way that they would never have access to it or never, um, be able to read it, um, or to even really benefit from it because I, um, you know, your books, you really do, um, a fabulous job, especially at the end of really guiding, guiding readers to what does this mean? And how can we change our social practices around sex and the soul? How can we change our social practices around um, social media and um, based on all the things you lay out in your books? And I think that um, is, is the full circle of, You know of research of of the positive impact and effect and and getting the widest um, readership you can to be able to benefit from this research. Where too often it kind of it can and does stay in the ivory ivory towers. So um, I love your framing of um, of all of that. I think it's it's a it's a uh, necessary um, and sadly maybe a unique um, perspective we don't often get to hear. Um, in the academy. So so. thank you for sharing that. Um, I guess as we think about, um, you know, kind of we're getting, getting near our time, um, often we don't get a chance to share with others the stories about what really mattered, about what put us on the paths that we're on today. Can you share one piece of advice that you received that really impacted you?
2: I don't know that I quite received advice early on because I just kept stumbling into opportunities um, and then figuring it out as I went. But I think just, especially, you know, as a woman, so I, I would say if you are a woman scholar, a transgender scholar, a non-binary scholar, um, a Black, Latinx, Asian scholar, you um, What's One of the things I think that was really shocking to me and exciting when I figured it out was that our voices are the most important voices on the book floor, the book exhibition floor at your conference, um, especially women. Um, women uh, make up the the biggest share of the book buying industry, and that means that uh Women are the most powerful people. <laughs> They're the most powerful scholars, in uh, you know, with the editors, because if we're going to write trade books, women um, make up a big share of the people who buy trade books. And so, you know, and I think the same goes for if you're a black scholar, if you're, you know, if you're um, an Asian scholar, etc. Like we're we're seeing. Um, there's just such a demand for, for diverse voices. And so in some ways, um, whereas in the uh, ivory tower, we, we may feel like the least valued people on that book floor at your conference, like we're the most valued ones. And I think once I learned that, it gave me some more confidence. Like, oh, that's right. There's a place for my voice. And it's, there's actually a bigger place for my voice. And that's in the publishing world. So I think that was just really exciting for me to figure out. Um, but I think the other thing that really helped me early on was I had an editor. Um, she published my second book. She was so extraordinary. And she was like, let's get you out there, you know, in terms of like writing in you know, newspapers and, and places. And she was like, you know, you can do book reviews because you're a scholar, because you have a PhD. And so I started just writing book reviews, like all the time for Publishers Weekly, for for national newspapers. Like one of the things I would do is just find a book I wanted to review. Um, It has to be a trade book, generally. And I would write, I would just write like the Washington Post (laughs) and say, hi, I'm like, I'm a scholar. My PhD is in X. And, you know, there's this book I know that's coming out and I really want to review it. And suddenly, I was writing these essay reviews, and you know, those give you credentials. Like, so when you're going to write a trade book, um, you've already proven to an editor that you can write for a broad audience, and you're also starting to make connections, and those are really valuable when you're selling a book. And so, if you're able to say in your bio, you know, Donna Freitas. Freitas Um, writes for Publishers Weekly, and she's, you know, published opinion pieces and book reviews in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and she's been on NPR or whatever, like that actually translates into um, money, you know, for your advance, like editors care a lot about that. So just realizing that your PhD is its own credential that will get you in the door as a book reviewer or as an opinion person, I think is um, was a really important thing I learned early on. And I learned to prioritize um, because because then it really it gets you noticed and um, editors care about it a lot.
1: Great. Thank you. Thank you. And then just finally, um, what's one piece of hope you could leave us with for the listeners today?
2: Oh, well, (laughs) It's a complicated day to be talking. about. It is, it is a complicated <laughs> day. I would. I'll stick to writing. Um, so I think one thing that's really good is that despite the pandemic, you know, people are reading more than ever. So I, I think the the publishing industry, like knock on wood, is is actually almost flourishing, which mm. is exciting. Um, But I would say most of all that just people are hungry for your voice. Um, People are hungry to be told the story of your research, believe it or not. And if you can find a way to, um, to tell that story, to tell it as a story, then all these doors will open up to you, I think. You have to decide it's what you want. You have to decide it's a priority. You have to decide that. Um, to do this despite the fact that depending on where you are in your career, it could be a risk. But I think the rewards are are many and and they're they're very diverse. And you know I think it's you know we, we go get our PhDs for a reason and usually that reason, is not to bury all the stuff we're interested in with a literature review. Um, Usually it's because there are ideas out there that so excite us that we're willing to spend five, six, ten years studying them and becoming experts about them. And, you know, rather than learn to bury them to the point where no one can see them in the work that we publish, there's this whole space out there where all they want is for us to to lead with that passion, the stuff that got us there in the first place, but then also write about it with all the experience and hard work that got us that credential. And so I think that's just so exciting to figure out. It was exciting for me. Um, it came with costs, but then you know, I think one of the rewards too is just like the other day, this woman wrote me to tell me that her, um, for her like thesis, I think it was her graduate thesis. She basically wrote a play uh, based on my research and she, it's going to be performed like just before Thanksgiving and it's going to be performed online. And she sent me a link and she wanted to know if I watched it. And I just thought, huh, wow, like my work is getting translated somehow into theater. Like someone like spun a play out of my academic research and I feel like stuff like that happens all the time like you end up hearing from people you know students who wrote their thesis on you or you know like grad students who had questions they want to talk to you or just someone's grandma who had a conversation about your work with their grandchild you know because they're going off to college or something like that and um for me I think just seeing how far you can go to like how far you can reach with the research how many different you know diverse groups and conversations you can become a part of is is just extraordinary and i would say that the the great joy of having written a trade book is the privilege of being in all the conversations that you get to be in by all the different people who write it who read it and want to talk to you afterwards it is it's really extraordinary and just such a privilege. So I would say it's worth all the risks, even if the risks can be many.
1: It's been just great talking with you today, Donna. Thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about your experience writing trade books. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) You're welcome. Oh, it's been so wonderful. I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.